everybody loves good transformation stories. Um, I've been a pastor for a while. I've done, I don't know how many hundreds of weddings. And so I have seen again and again, a transformation stories. This is sort of how it goes. A couple will contact me and say, hey, we'd love you to do our wedding. You either married friends of ours or we heard about you, whatever else. Would you marry us? And I'll be like, yeah, sure. I'd love to do that. I love doing weddings. When are you getting married? I've got six months or a year. Lacquer, put it, can I do it? Put it in the diary. Great. Hey, let's meet together a few months, a month before your wedding, and let's chat the details kind of thing. Lacquer, great. You don't see them for months and months. Then you meet them again. I promise you the amount of times I've met people again months and months after green to do their wedding, closer to their actual wedding, and they're unrecognizable. They've been going to the gym. They've been tanning. They've been dieting. They're getting, you know, shredded to get wedded or whatever. I don't know what the latest catchphrase is that the young oaks use these days. I, I meet people, I'm like, do we know each other kind of thing. Like, I don't recognize you, oaks. Are you the same people kind of thing? And then you see them on their wedding day. They look the same. Then you see them a couple of years later. I remember you guys. Yeah, you asked me to marry you. Now there, there was an in-between section there where you you were different people. You know, people transform. We love stories like this. We there's somebody on our staff who will remain nameless. Her name rhymes with Gemma. Um, she loves she loves these reality series. Um, that she's I think she binge watches these things. People makeovers, home makeovers, dress makeovers, like. And some, maybe some of you love those things. You know, when they go into somebody's house and it's like a mess, you know, and then they bring in all these experts and then they just transform it and they take the people away and they come back and it's like, look at this, it's amazing. And sometimes they do with people. I love those short little ones where they do with homeless people. Have you seen those ones? Maybe you haven't seen them. When they take like random people off the street who like look like they've been living on the street for 10 years and they cut their hair and they you know, give them a shower and a bath and put them in fancy suits and then people are unrecognizable often. And I, we all love transformation. We love to see change. Sometimes we love to see it in ourselves. If you're on a diet, that's encouraging. Today, I, wanna, I want us to look at and to celebrate a transformation story that we see in the scriptures that gives us hope on Resurrection Sunday that we too can change, that we too can change, that the hope of the resurrection is this, that you can change. You can change because there is a God who's committed to you and who loves you, and is all about your transformation. And your transformation is linked to his resurrection. I'll say that again. Your transformation is linked to his resurrection. An example I want us to look at is Paul. You may not know um, Paul. Um, you may not be very familiar with the Bible. Paul gave us a good, a good section of the New Testament, uh, wrote a lot of it. Uh, Paul the apostle. And I want us to look at just three things briefly this morning. I want to try and keep it short because the kids are with us. Um, three things that we see, sorry, voice is breaking again. We see in his life that, that the resurrection accomplishes that give us great hope this morning. The first thing that you see uh, when somebody comes into contact with the resurrected Jesus is a changed life. The first thing you see when somebody comes into contact with the resurrected Jesus, is that there's a changed life. We have uh, three records of Paul, of, of the account of Paul's immediate transformation. So when it comes to a changed life, God changes your life immediately, in an immediate sense, and then there's a lifelong change. We'll talk about both of these. But I want us to read, if you've got a, a Bible or a phone, 
uh, head towards Acts 26. Uh, if you don't have one, I think um, the verses we look at this morning will be on the screen uh, behind me. Uh, let's, let's look at this because this is Paul's own account. Uh, he, gives, he, gives, he gets two opportunities to share his story with different groups of people. And this is him sharing his story uh, before uh, King Agrippa. Um, so he's just sort of in prison and he's getting a chance to share his story of what, what, what happened to him. Um, and if you don't know his story, his story, the summary of it is that he goes from being a persecutor of Christians to being persecuted as a Christian. This is, this is the most radical shift that you see, uh, I mean, not in anyone, but in a lot of people. Acts 26 from verse 19, this is, we're just diving into his story. Uh, he's going, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, as I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, about noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The Lord replied, now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Let's pray together as we look at God's word this morning. Father, we, we pray that as we come to look at your word, to gather under its authority, we pray that you would, that you would speak to us, that you would teach us, that you would reveal yourself um, to us on this most wonderful Sunday that we get to celebrate together as a church as we consider and reflect again on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We pray that you, living God, amongst us this morning would speak, would glorify your own name, would, would challenge our own hearts, would encourage us, would remind us again what, what, this is all, what this is all about. There's so many potential distractions, so many potential obstacles to our hearts been fully engaged and captured by you again this morning, and we pray for your help. We pray that you would reveal yourself to us more than anything, anything else we long for. We long to meet with and hear from the living God, and so we pray for you to do that now in Jesus' name. Amen. This is this immediate 
transformation you see in Paul. And whenever you read the story, I'm struck afresh by what happens here. This is not a guy who's, who's out there searching, reading books, trying to figure out what's Christianity all about, accepting um, invitations from friends to go on an alpha course or, or whatever else. You know, some of you are here today because somebody invited you and you owe them a favor. And so you said, I'll come to church with you. This is it. Like, this is the only time I'm coming. Stop bugging me. I'll come on Easter. Like, then we're, then we're quits. We're even Stevens kind of thing. You get, you get some people who are not like all, like some people who are searching and super keen and trying to figure it all out and comparing all the different religions. And then you get other people um, who are not searching, who are just ha- happily kind of just doing life kind of thing. And then you get people like Paul who are actively opposed to Christianity. Like, he almost wears it as a badge of honor. Like, I was the meanest of the meanest. Like, I was, I was traveling to foreign cities. I was all over these guys. I was, you know, voting for them to be put to death. There was nothing that was stopping me back from, from getting these guys. He, he, the Christians were called the way. He, he considers himself a persecutor of the way. And what happens? God comes to meet with him. I find it am- amazing and encouraging. You don't have to be searching for God, for God to find you. You can be minding your own business. And maybe you were minding your own business until you got here this morning. Maybe you were minding your own business and then you came this morning and God is rocking up. I'm not God. Just want to clarify that. I don't, I don't even speak on his behalf as it were. But I know that there's a reality of what happens spiritually that God confronts people with his own presence and himself. And he comes to upend your world. You're happily marching along, as it were, minding your own business, going about your day and your life like Paul. And God goes and meets with him. This is what grace looks like. Paul gets what he doesn't deserve. He gets a second chance at life. He's busy persecuting Christians and the one whom he's ultimately persecuting, Jesus comes and reveals himself to him. Moyes amazed at how this worked for Paul. Paul knew more potentially about the death and resurrection and the claims of that than you and I do. He was closer to the original events of all of this happening than you and I are. We're like, what, 2,000 years on from this? We read about it. We sort of believe it in faith. He was... Uh, decades, if that far away, from Jesus having risen. There were life eyewitnesses still alive, Peter and other apostles who were disciples of Jesus. This is close proximity to the guy who claimed to be the Son of God, who died on the cross, and who rose back to life. It's not that Paul didn't know the claims of Jesus. He wasn't unaware of the claims of Jesus. Being aware, being aware of what Christianity is all about, doesn't make you a Christian. It didn't make Paul a Christian. It made him the enemy of Christians. Information is not the same as transformation. You can know a whole bunch of stuff about the Bible, about church, about God, about Christianity, and it leaves you completely untransformed. That's what you see in Paul. He knew all the stuff, and it made him an enemy. Maybe you're sitting here this morning, you know all this stuff, but you've never actually, like Paul, you've never met the living God. 
You never met the living God. Paul meets the resurrected Jesus and he's immediately changed. And then he enters into a lifetime of being transformed. A lifetime of being transformed. This is encouragement for anyone who's a Christian here this morning and you feel like progress is slow. Some of you are in worse condition this Easter than you were last Easter. Your heart's cooled a bit. You can't find your Bible. You know, all those kinds of things. Like, you're just like, yeah, I'm here. I'm here. But you just, you, you, you're wandering. You're wafting. You've, you haven't been part of a, a life-giving church community for ages. You have doubts that just bobble around in your head and your heart all the time. I want to remind you this morning that this is God's commitment to you. is a commitment of lifetime transformation. We're going to look at a lot of verses from Philippians this morning. It feels like I'm almost preaching the whole book of Philippians this morning. Listen to some of the stuff that Paul says as he writes to the Philippians. Philippians 1 verse 6. I'm sure of this, that he, God, who started a good work in you, will carry it on to completion. Until when? Until the day of Christ Jesus. That day is either the day that he comes back or he calls us to go and be with him. He will continue a work in you all the way through your life. It, that's amazing, isn't it? It was such a joy the other day, we were a couple of weeks ago, um, to baptize um, Zelda and Johan. They're here somewhere this morning. I can't see them. They, oh, there they are. They've been Christians. They've been believers for, I don't even know. I think, I think Zelda's been a Christian for like 41 years or something. And she got baptized. Isn't that encouraging? So if some of you have been believers less than 41 years, you need to get baptized next time we do it kind of thing. And it was wonderful to hear their story. I've been on fire and then wandering and then coming back to the Lord. And God's firing them up again for lots more for them. They retired, but there's lots more that the Lord's got for them. Progress is a lifetime thing. It's a lifetime thing that God does in us all the way to the day of Christ. Philippians 2 verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Keep working out your salvation with fear and trembling, not being afraid, but with awe and reverence. Work it out, work it out. Keep, keep putting one foot in front of another, and you will make progress. What does he say in chapter 3 of Philippians from verse 12? Not that I've already attained, already reached the goal or am already perfect. But I make every effort to take hold of it because I've also uh, have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, I forget what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. This is a guy that if you bumped into him, you'd probably think, wow, you're the, you know, I don't know any Christian who's as good as you, Paul. You're amazing. What you're willing to endure, what you're willing to go through, how much you know, your character, all of this stuff. Like, yeah, he'd be in church every day of the week kind of thing, that kind of guy. Like, he wasn't, but very impressive. And yet he says, I, I'm not there yet. I'm not there. I'm still pressing on. I'm still persevering. I want to take hold. I haven't taken hold of it yet. This is like near the end of his life. He still wants more of God. There's still more change to happen. First thing I want us to really bank is that there is hope 
for change. There's hope for change. I know most of us, I know some of you, some of you are complete strangers to me. And I know a lot of other people. I was chatting with some of my mates, talking the other day about uh, some of his struggles around wanting to see personal, personal change in his own life. And just where he's getting, he's getting nowhere. I want to encourage you this morning, the hope for personal change lies in Jesus. He is the transforming one. Because he is the resurrected one. And he is able to transform your life in all of the ways that you most long to see happen and have maybe failed in. Meeting the resurrected Jesus changes us. Secondly, meeting the resurrected Jesus leads to a captivated life, a changed life, and then a captivated life. Paul loves Jesus. Paul loves Jesus. There's just no other way to say it, no other way to put it. You read the account of Paul's life, what he signs up for, what God calls him to. He ends up basically just traveling, 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 staying in some places, moving. He gets beaten, flogged, shipwrecked, chased out of places, booed, like heckled, hated. You know, he goes without again and again. It's, if, if anyone wants to take a swing at Paul and say, bro, you were in it for the fame and the glory. You were in it for the prestige. You, yeah, it was a self-serving thing that you got into this for. It's like, really? Like, I, I would agree with you that there are, there are people, there are branches of Christianity, or at least those who claim to be Christians who get into it for their, own, for their own benefit, for the money, for the fame, whatever else. And maybe some of you are sitting here thinking, that's why I don't go to church, because you're all about the bucks, you're all about the power, all that kind of jazz. And those are legitimate accusations in some areas. It's not a legit accusation against Paul. There's no money. There's no power. There's no fame. There's no prestige. There's just difficulty and more difficulty, followed by more difficulty, and then death. That's basically Paul's life. And he's like, I rejoice in these things. It's like, did I read that correctly? Like, you know, have you been in jail too long? You need to see someone. Get out, get some fresh air. Like, you don't seem to be okay, Paul. But he, he, he sees things differently to the way we see things. He, he, he's all about different stuff. And he loves Jesus. He wasn't in it for other stuff. And listen, remember the transformation. This is the fire-breathing, Christian-killing nutcase who God got a hold of. And listen now to how he speaks. Listen now. Again, right into the Philippians. From verse 21 of chapter 1. For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Now if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. And I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ. Which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Paul is stuck. He's like, I just want to go and be with Jesus. But I realize because of you, I should stay. It's more helpful for you if I stay. But if you give me an option, I want to go and be with Jesus. I want to go and be with the one who I used to hate and who I used to persecute. Who brings about that kind of a change? Who can capture a heart like that to turn the fire-breathing, Christian-killing nutcase into one who just wants to leave this world and go and be with him? Only God can turn people's lives around like that. Only God. Only a resurrected Jesus can grab a hold of your life and your heart like that. Listen to his extended description in Philippians 3. 
from verse 4 to 11. Him giving some of his pedigree and talking about what he's given up, the change that God has brought about in his life. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. This is his pedigree, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews regarding the law, a Pharisee regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. According to worldly standards, this is like the rock star, the A-team, captain. Verse 7, but everything that was a gain to me, I've considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I consider everything to be a loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. This is a complete transformation that has been wrought by the resurrected Jesus. And this is a summary of what Paul's saying. You can take it all. You can take it all. All I want is Jesus. All I want is him. And those are the most challenging words. And as I reflected on that this week, I thought, man, there's a lot of stuff that I really love. And I know you guys, I know you're not very dissimilar to me. There's a lot of things that you love. There's a lot of things that we love in life and we depend on for our joy and our satisfaction and our meaning and our purpose and our status and everything. And some of those things we're enslaved to. Paul talks about that. He says the things of the world, if you love them and you elevate them above God, you become a slave to them. They control you. They hold the power over you. You don't hold the power over them. They're not servants to you. They're slave masters over you. And you know this because if you take it away, what would happen to your joy? It would evaporate. And for many people in this part of the world, we're so tethered to things. We're so tethered to our stuff and to our reputations and our finances and our safety and our comfort and our, our things that if you take it away, your world would fall apart. And Paul says, you can take it all. You can take it all. You just leave me with one thing. All I want is him. All I want is Jesus. And you know what? Actually take the things away because then it makes me lean on him more. I get to know him more. I get to be shaped. I get to be transformed and look more like Jesus. That is my goal. My desire for you this morning is that you would discover the true freedom lies in knowing the son, not attaching ourselves to the world's things. Some of us are so tethered to those things. And we wonder why we live such joyless, enslaved lives. It's because we were never meant to love those things. God will not share his glory and his love with another. You either love him or you love the things of the world. The resurrected Jesus grabs a hold of Paul's heart and says, this is mine, this man's life is mine, and teaches him throughout his lifetime to let go of everything. And right near the end of his life, he says, all I want is him. 
All I need is him. The third thing and the last thing we see is that when a resurrected Jesus gets hold of your life, it leads to a consecrated life. I had to go with the third C just to honor Dave uh, and his uh, alliteration. Love. But it can be a surrendered life, a consecrated life, a committed life. It doesn't matter. You hear here as Paul gives the speech to King, King Agrippa. This is right near the end of his life. He is so clear why God has him on the planet. He understands with crystal clarity why he is still alive. He knows why there's still breath in his lungs. He's like, he, rem, he goes back to that story when, when Jesus confronts him on that road. He says, get up, stand on your feet. He couldn't see anything. You read the other accounts. He's got these scales over his eyes. He can't see anything for about another day still. He says, get up, stand on your feet. And he gives him a commission. He says, I'm going to send you. I'm going to send you to people. And you're going to proclaim the gospel to them. And they're going to believe, and they're going to believe, and they're going to believe. And they're going to hate you, but I will protect you. And part of the reason that you're sitting here today as a believer in Jesus is because Paul went and he shared the gospel and others shared the gospel and churches were planted and the gospel spread amongst the Gentiles and that hasn't stopped. And God gives him such a clear call on his life. I simply want to say this, that unless you have a clear understanding of why you exist and how it fits into the greater purpose of the glory of God, you will live for everything else. You will run around like a headless chicken trying to suck meaning and life and purpose out of everything else in the world. And it will leave you at the end of the day frustrated, empty, bored, and still longing. When you discover why God has you still on the earth. And that the ultimate reason is to live for the glory of God wherever he has you spending your weeks. Life is transformed. Life changes. And it's all tethered to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if Jesus is still in the tomb, if he hasn't risen from death, my preaching is in vain. All of this is in vain. We are to be pitied above all people. What a load of nonsense. Friends, this morning, if Jesus is unresurrected, if he has not risen from death, we're the most pitiful fools in the world. We've all gathered here, convinced ourselves this is a real thing. It's not a real thing. It's a bit lame. We're all just like, this is exciting. Jesus rose from the dead. If he hasn't risen from the dead, the world should pity us. The same shame, these poor people. They're so kind of full of hope, but they're just misguided. They're just, he's still in the ground. But he isn't. He isn't. And that's why we're not to be pitied. That's why we're not fools. That's why we have full confidence that the one who we believe died, the Father did raise in the power of the Spirit for all eternity. And he now sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning, and he's coming back again to establish his kingdom in all of its fullness and the final authority and to make everything new and reconcile all things to himself. That's what he went to the cross for. It's still going to happen. Paul understood that his life wasn't his own. When he writes to the Corinthians, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in verse 19, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So, glorify God with your body. Paul understood this. He was not his own. God had bought him at a price. If you're a Christian this morning, that's true of you. You don't live for yourself. 
You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. And the price was the blood of Jesus Christ. We celebrated it on Friday. We celebrate it every week here. The glory of the cross and Jesus in our place for our sin. And this morning, we delight and celebrate the fact that the, that the Father rose the Son from death. And that the resurrected Jesus comes as we're in this morning to encounter us again and, and change us. And capture our hearts and call us again to live for Him. Not to live for ourselves, but to live for Him. Like Paul says in other places, he pours his life out as a drink offering. He just empties himself for the purposes of God. It's all because, it's all because he was minding his own business one day. But God had a greater plan for him. And he met him. Resurrected Jesus met him on that road to Damascus. And he was never the same. The world has never been the same since then. And the good news for you this morning is the resurrected Jesus is still doing that. He has never stopped. He's never stopped encountering people on the road of their lives, wandering around, doing their daily things, and arresting them and saying, I am going to change your life. I'm going to capture your heart, and I'm going to commission you to live for me. Not for yourself. It's not about you. It's all about him. Resurrection Sunday reminds us that it's not about us. It's all about him. And we can live with meaning and purpose and joy because the resurrected Jesus comes as a word to confront each of us this morning and say, hey, you belong to me. Change is possible. I will transform the things that you love and I will send you into the world to live with meaning and purpose. Our prayer and our response this morning is this, change me, Lord. Change me, Lord. My heart is yours. My life is yours. Do with me as you will. You are the resurrected Savior of the world, it's all about Him. Let's pray together. Father, on this... Um on this uh, Easter Resurrection Sunday, we want to remember, again, as we've been considering these things, that in your, in your power and in your mercy, in your kindness, you raised Jesus Christ, your eternal son, from the grave, gave him a seat at the right hand of yours for all eternity, confirmed him to be the Messiah the Savior of the world. You've broken the power of Satan and sin and death. And because he's risen from death, Jesus is able to give eternal life to those who call on his name and who believe in him. And again this morning, we want to do that. Whether we've done it, we're doing it for the first time or for the hundredth time, year after year, we call on you again. And we want to remind ourselves and we want to say, Jesus, all of our hope is in you. All of our life is in you. All of our hope for personal change and transformation lies in you and what you're able to do in us. All of our hope to have our, our loves and our affections and the desires of our hearts transformed and set on you lies in you. And in the fact that you are able to transform us and change us. 
all of our hope for living a meaningful, purposeful life is found in you because you're the one who calls us to your purposes and doesn't just let us wander around busying ourselves with nonsense, but you capture us into your purposes and bring us into your kingdom's mission. It's all about you, the resurrected living Jesus Christ. This morning, seated on your throne, here amongst us, through the presence of the Spirit, and we worship you this morning. We humble our hearts before you. We say that our lives belong to you. And I pray for those who may be here this morning who've never, who've never agreed with something like that, that never acknowledge that they need you more than anything else, that they never place their full faith and confidence in you for salvation and for life. And I pray that you'd give them grace to do that this morning, to receive the gift of forgiveness and eternal life in Jesus Christ. You changed Paul on that day. You can change people today. And you are changing us who believe. We rejoice in you this morning, Jesus. Our hearts and our eyes and our minds are on you. And we celebrate you. Your resurrection has turned everything on its head. And we just want to say thank you, Father, for the grace that we see in that, for the power and the authority that's on display in the resurrection of Jesus. Our lives and our hearts are yours this morning. We love you and we worship you in Jesus' name.